From politics in the pub Newcastle, in collaboration with the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle, this is Politics in a Podcast. The federal government has handed down its budget for 2020, arguably the most critical budget for the country since the Second World War. Joining us on Politics in a Podcast to unpack the government's economic agenda is Bill Mitchell, Professor of Economics at the University of Newcastle. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much. The 2020 budget is a far cry from the surplus that the coalition was predicting, uh, and this budget now predicts a deficit rising to over $200 billion by the end of next year. My first question, what actually is a national deficit, and is the coalition's historic devotion to achieving surplus a sign of good fiscal policy? Well, I mean, the, the government runs, runs spending and revenue accounts. So uh, governments spend into the economy, they spend its currency, and they then take that currency out in a number of ways, fees and fines and taxes of a variety of different types. And uh, we're talking federal government here in the Australian context. And so when we talk about the budget, I don't use that term, and I'll explain in a second why, but when we talk about the budget, I use the term fiscal balance, because it relates to fiscal policy, spending and taxation. And so the fiscal balance is the difference between government spending and government receipts via revenue. Now, they, economists break it up a little bit further and they talk about a primary fiscal balance, which is just government spending net of the interest payments they pay on their outstanding debt and then and the difference between that and taxation and then they add in interest payments on debt to the final figure and so if you're spending more currency into the economy than you're taking out via taxes you're running a deficit and if you're spending less than you're taking out you're running a surplus now if you think about what that means if if the economy produces a certain amount of income each period by production. So the inc- uh, firms and uh, higher resources, productive resources, they pay incomes to them in all different ways and uh, they pay that out of the total production. So, so we have a gross domestic product is total production and income is equal to that. Now, if people then and I'm talking about the private sector, the non-government sector, if we take our income and we decide overall the non-government sector wants to save a bit of that income, it means it won't be recycled back into spending. Now, if that happens, then firms that were producing at the previous level will now have less, which was driven by spending at that level, will now have less spending coming in because we've saved, we've withdrawn some of the income and so they'll cut back production. And if we keep saving, they'll, and you, know, you, you end up in a recession. Mm. Now, that, that's very important to understand because the role of fiscal policy is not to record any particular outcome, any number. The role of fiscal policy is to fill that spending gap left by the desire to save by the non-government sector. So let's, for example, say GDP was 100 whatever, 
and we save and total incomes a hundred, and we save twenty of that. Well, then spending will only be next period eighty, mm. and so the government has to fill that to maintain the production level at a hundred. So they have to spend into the economy in net terms twenty. That's a deficit. Yep. So, in other words, you have you you think of deficits as funding the desire of the non-government sector to save, because if the government tried to run a surplus in that context, then it would make matters worse. Yep. And so, the role of fiscal policy is really to ensure that all the productive resource, resources are fully employed, yep. and to allow the non-government sector to save a little bit. Now. When you think about that, then uh, you can't make any sense of a statement that oh, a surplus is better than a deficit. Well, how do we know? Well, we don't know unless we have a context for that statement, and the context is what the non-government sector is doing. And if you then think about that, you learn another very important thing: is that the government really can't can't control its final fiscal outcome anyway. They project all these numbers, but they're reliant, they're dependent on the non-government sector. How does that work? Well, that works because if we choose, let's say they're predicting a, uh, a deficit of 1%, the government, and that's predicated on a certain amount of non-government spending to drive output growth and income growth. And remember that tax revenue is directly related to how much activity there is in the economy, which because through various ways, but uh, predominantly through employment. So if, if they are projecting a deficit of 1% and a certain level of non-government spending and a certain level of non-government employment, and we as the non-government sector decide not to spend that much and to save more, well, their tax revenue falls. And if their tax revenue falls, their deficit goes up, even though they didn't do it, they didn't change any policies. We, we drove their final fiscal outcome by our saving and spending desires. Yep. And so as a consequence, the idea that you would pursue a certain fiscal position as if you had control over it is just nonsensical. And so the, what the role of the government should be is to run it, let the deficit be whatever it is or, or the fiscal position to be whatever it is so that we maintain high levels of employment and, and income growth. And, and so, so that's the first point. Mm -hmm. um, now, it gets more complicated if we then divide the non-government sector up into an external sector and a private domestic sector. Because now, now we have a different scenario. Uh, take a country that's... So the external sector is our trade sector. Mm. And our capital flows in and, out, in and out of the country. Now, take a country like Norway. It has very strong export revenue coming into the economy from the North Sea energy resources, oil and gas. So they're getting, from the rest of the world, they're getting a massive amount of spending coming into their economy. Now, the, in that context, the private domestic sector 
can, that spending coming from the external sector drives employment and income growth in the domestic economy. And so in that case, the Norwegian government may have to run a surplus, withdraw net spending from the economy, which would still allow first-class public infrastructure, still allow uh, private sector to save as much as it wants to, and not, and maintain the uh, growth in the economy, but they need to run a surplus. Because if they tried to run a deficit in that context, they would drive the economy to, they'd overheat the economy because there'd be too much spending. Because remember that inflation is driven by the relationship between spending and the ability of the productive capacity of the economy to respond to that spending by producing things. And so if there's too much spending and it's driving the demand for goods and services beyond the capacity to produce them, well then what happens is prices start going up. And so in the Norwegian case, because it's got such a strong external sector pushing in spending to the economy, the government doesn't have to push as much of its own spending in and may actually have to withdraw a bit of total spending through a surplus. So that's context. Mm. Now take Australia, we typically run an external deficit. We import more typically than we export, although not quite now, but we typically do. And we also send income abroad because of the foreign ownership of our resources. And so our external sector, unlike Norway's, which is injecting a lot of money into the economy, our external sector is draining spending from our economy because we're, we're importing more than we're, we're exporting. We're sending our money out, out of the economy more than people are sending money into our economy. Now, in that context, uh, it's a totally different scenario. If the private sector wants, domestic sector wants to save in that context, then the government has to run a deficit, mm. has to. And so when anyone says, well, how do you appraise the particular position of the government at the moment? I say, well, let's work out the context. Now, at the moment in Australia, we've got a small external deficit. So there's a drain of spending going out of the economy. The private sector is in record levels of debt and has clearly started to cut back in the last, about the last six months to nine months, has, be, has been cutting back consumption spending because they're trying to save a bit more so that they can pay down debt. Now in that context, trying to run a surplus is grossly irresponsible. And the reason why the economy, even pre-pandemic, the economy was slowing down dramatically. It was about half trend growth. The reason it was doing that is because the government was, was uh, starving the economy of spending, given the draining of the spending to the external sector and the increased desire to save of the private domestic sector. And so in that context, trying to run a surplus was, was just irresponsible and reckless, and it was just ideological obsession. Mm. So my next question is, uh, the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has characterised this budget as focusing on the creation uh, of jobs, and you mentioned um, the employment um, issue. 
So Frydenberg's claim is underpinned by the tax cuts and concessions for business and consumers to encourage spending, a subsidy for hiring young people, and accelerated infrastructure projects. So given what you've just said, does the research bear out the government's predictions that this combination of cuts and spending will lead to uh, employment growth? Well, I mean, the, if you look at the... the uh, by the way, I meant to clarify why I don't use the term budget. Uh, and it's an important point because it relates to the capacity of the government versus a household. Now, we've been led to believe in this by, by economists that the government is really just like a household. And, uh, and what they want us to do is to extrapolate our life's experience running our own budgets into making, into making assessments about what the government should do. Mm. Now, for you and me, we have a budget. Yeah. We are financially constrained in our spending. When we want to spend, we've got to work out where to get the money from. We've got to go to work. We've got to use prior savings. We might go and sell some stuff on eBay or we can borrow. But one way or another, we've got to fund every spend, everything we spend because we use the currency. Now, who issues the currency? The government, the federal government. So they can't possibly be financially constrained because it's their currency. They can issue that in unlimited amounts. And so the federal government's nothing like a household. The federal government is not financially constrained ever. And any rules it places on itself to pretend that it is are just voluntary rules for ideological reasons. And so use, language and framing is really important in political discourse. And so using the term budget immediately invokes the household analogy and, and takes us back to all of those metaphors about maxing out the credit card and living within your means and all of those things that are used by ideologues to cut spending on welfare, to refuse to uh, employ people and, all, and cutting public health and education, refusing to fund our university systems properly and all of that. So I think we should avoid falling into the sort of conservative framing that works against progressive discourse. Back to your question. Um, Look, the, the evidence, the, the proof is in the pudding, my mother used to say. And what, what the proof in this case is, look at the fiscal projections in the papers. The government releases what are called budget papers, and they contain a mass of information. For an economist, it's very interesting. For everyone else, it's dead boring. Uh, but the, in, their, in their projections, by, with in two years hence, they've still got an unemployment rate of 6.5%. Now, if you work out, and if you use their population projections that they've got there, and then extrapolate what the labour force will be, the number of people that are looking for work or, or are in work, a 6% unemployment rate in 2022 would be about an unemployment level of about you know, 980,000 people. It's about what we've got now. So in other words, even by their own projections, they're not creating very many jobs at all. And they're not doing anything 
to reduce unemployment in any real systematic way. Now, the, the other thing that is not off, you know, when the government states the unemployment rate figure, they don't tell you that the labour forces, during the pandemic, the labour forces shrunk dramatically. Uh, around by September, yesterday the figures came out from the, the monthly labour force figures came out and by uh, for September and by September between March and September when the pandemic began in Australia more or less about 240,000 workers have left the labour force what does that mean? that means when the Australian Bureau of Statistics goes around and does its monthly survey it asks are you working one hour or more a week? If you answer yes, you're called employed one hour. That's the difference between being employed or not. If you answer no, they say, are you willing to work, available and willing to work? If you answer yes, they say, are you actively looking for work? And if you answer yes to that, you're called unemployed. If you answer no, you're called not in the labour force. Now, when you have a, a massive downturn in employment, a lot of workers just give up looking, especially those that don't depend upon Centrelink-type activity you know, tests to get their income support. So for those people who aren't on, they, they tend to just drop out because there's, what's the point? There's no job opportunities. They're just tearing their hair out. They just stop looking for the time being. And as soon as employment growth increases again, they come straight back in and grab looking for jobs. And we call those people who are willing to work and available to work but have just stopped looking, they're classified by the ABS as being outside the labour force and not officially unemployed. Well, we call them hidden unemployed mm. because they're, they're, they're effectively no different to the unemployed. They take a job today if it was offered to them they're just not looking so that's about 230 if you add 1000 of those people if you add that back into the unemployment rate it jumps up around nearly to 8, 8.5% and then if you look at the number of people that have left the labour force since August last year it jumps up to about 9.5% so the even though the there was a lot of verbiage by the Treasurer Tuesday before. Uh, it was an ideological document. It was, it was billions of dollars short of what it needed to be. It was, uh, uh, and what I mean by ideological, it was a supply side document. So economists tend to divide along whether they think the market market incentives should be the vehicle to generate activity or whether demand, spending and direct uh, uh, spending forces should generate activity. I'm from the, the side that says if you want to stimulate activity, spend into the economy and firms will respond to that increased demand for sales by producing, hiring, paying wages and growth occurs. Uh, cutting taxes and doing all of those things as supply-side measures that don't directly, don't directly stimulate spending. And uh, uh, my, my feeling is that the, 
fiscal statement made by uh, the Treasurer the week before last, uh, the Tuesday before last, um, was a supply-side ideological neoliberal type statement and uh, uh, totally inadequate, uh, doesn't, hasn't addressed the major deficiencies of their pan first pandemic response. So, you know, the fact that they left more than a million casual workers out of JobKeeper, the fact that they uh, uh, excluded the university system from JobKeeper, so, you know, we were having massive, absolute carnage in our university system and a lot of the more vulnerable workers who are, you know, uh, uh, research workers and those type of people, they're, they're just going to be cast aside. And uh, that's no way to run a country. Well, that um, leads into my next question quite nicely. Um, what is your response to Professor Richard Holden's argument that, and I quote here, as a growth enhancement measure, the phase two and three tax cuts make a lot of sense. Taxing labour income tends to lead to people working less. That's less economic growth, less personal income, less tax and less spending, end quote. Yeah, well, that just comes out of a, a mainstream textbook, a piece of fiction. And... Um, there's very little evidence on the disincentive effect. This is the famous effect that uh, uh, if you cut taxes, everybody will work harder. Um, uh, even in the textbooks, the, the, the mainstream textbooks, the orthodox textbooks, uh, that question is un, un, theoretically is undecided. Big, and we won't talk about it here, but it depends on so-called substitution and income effects. Now, they sound fancy terms, but uh, rem remember that if you get tax cuts, your disposable income rises, so you don't even have to work as hard to, to, to maintain your previous level of income, and that's an income effect. So it's, that's unresolved. The empirical evidence, the research that's been conducted over many decades to try to resolve that question, whether tax cuts increase work effort, are ambiguous. Uh, there's nothing clear cut about that statement and there's a, a, the balance of probabilities is that uh, the effect is very minor, if at all. That's the first point. Uh, but the, 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 the more important question is if, you, if the government spends a, do, a dollar into the economy that goes straight into sales. So they, they issue a procurement a tender, they procure X billion dollars worth of stuff from the private sector. That's straight demand. The, the supply side of the economy responds immediately by producing more, meet, you know, meeting that, that increased demand for sales and uh, uh, employment's driven by that and income growth, that's straight, that's direct, unambiguous. And that has what we call multiplier effects. What are they? These multiplier effects are, so if the government buys a billion dollars worth of equipment for the schooling system, or the whole, in the current climate, the health system, well, the workers that produce the PEP for the uh, health system they uh, who get employed to you know add the extra workers employed as a consequence of that extra spending what do they do 
well, they've now got an income, whereas previously they didn't have. And so they increase their spending. And so they go out and they buy food in their local shopping centre. They might go do do you know go on a little holiday up the coast these days. You can't go very far, <laughs> and all the rest of it. But that and what what happens to that extra spending? Well, it means then the tour the, the tourist operator up the coast might employ an extra casual worker because there's more people now coming. The supermarkets are. Uh, start getting increased sales, so they put on more staff to stack shelves, and so on. You, know, you can see it multiplies out. When those extra workers get employed, they then spend more, and so you get this multiplied effect from that government spending. Mm. Now you think about how tax cuts work, and ignore the didn't ignore who's getting the tax cuts for the time being. Let's just say that there's a standard person who gets a tax cut. Well, the tax cut just increases their disposable income. So it goes up by a certain amount as a consequence of the tax cut. Now, what are they going to do with that increased disposable income? Well, what do, they, what do we do with any increase in income? We spend a bit of it and we save a bit of it. So let's say economists use this term marginal propensity to consume. All that means, in fan, that's just a fancy term for how much of extra every extra dollar do you spend and how much do you save and that's around 0.75 or 0.8 which means that every dollar you get extra you spend 80 cents or 75 well you're saving 25 or 20 that's not go- that's not going to be spent and so for an equivalent injection of government spending for an equivalent estimated tax cut lump the injection from spending is much greater than the tax cut because you, some of it's lost in savings now then you then you ask yourself the question uh, who got the tax cuts uh, were, and we know the different income groups across the income distribution have different propensities to consume so very low-income workers tend to have very high propensities to consume. So if they get an extra dollar, they tend to spend every bit of it because they're living on bare essentials. Whereas someone with a very high income in, say, the top decile of the income distribution, they have very low marginal propensity to consume because they've got so much income. You know, you can only go out and party so many times a week and so they tend to have very high savings for each additional dollar they get because they've already got so much income each week. So if the tax cuts are biased towards the upper end of the income distribution, the amount that's lost in savings is much greater than if the tax cuts are biased at the bottom end of the income distribution. And so you ask yourself, what, who, who benefited the most from the tax cuts that have been proposed? the top end of the distribution benefited the most, not the bottom end. The bottom end, there was a a great little utility on the ABS website where you could plug in an income level and you could see how much uh, each of a person with that income level would save, uh, would uh, uh, increase their disposable income. And it was unbelievable how much a a person on 300,000 would get 
relative to a person on 50000 Hardly anything for the 50000 $100 or something over a year. I can't remember what it was. Thousands of dollars for the other person over the period. So that's the second question. Second question, but second point. But the third point then is you've got to also see it in the context of the con- what's happening. Now, at the moment we've got an unbelievable crisis. It's a human catastrophe going on, and none of us have any inkling of what where it's going to end. And, you know, in March we might have thought, oh, yeah, there'll be a vaccine, we'll be fine, it's like a flu, blah, blah, you know. I think everybody, or, or, or the majority of people are now realising that this is not something that's going to go away anytime soon. And uh, governments are talking now about leaving our external borders closed all of next year even, and all the rest of it. Our lives are irrevocably changing. There's deep uncertainty. We don't know whether we'll have jobs tomorrow for a lot of people. And moreover, household debt is around 200% of disposable income. And if you go back to July last year, when the first round of the tax cuts were announced, the economists were watching retail sales, the figures. They hardly moved. And the conclusion was that the tax cuts did nothing. And then, of course, those who hate government said, see, government, should, government of policy is ineffective. But what really it meant was that given the amount of debt that the households are having and the uncertainty was starting to increase, not because of the pandemic, but because of the government pursuing its obsession about surpluses, people basically took all of the increase of disposable income from those tax cuts and paid down their debts and saved it. Now, in, you, you then had go another year and a bit, and you've got now, on top of all of that, you've got the pandemic. Nobody knows where they're going to be or what's going to happen. And as a consequence, those precarious households who might have had a high propensity to consume every extra dollar of disposable income, who have got very high credit card debt and very high other debts, they're very likely to say every extra dollar we get we're going to try to make ourselves more financially secure, to insulate ourselves from any unemployment or any loss of working hours that might happen. Uh, uh, There's all talks about real estate prices going to fall dramatically because of the population growth slowing, because of the external borders being closed. People are saying, gosh, what happens if we have negative equity on our mortgage? So in that context, even on top of what I've already said about tax cuts not being very effective relative to direct spending, it's even worse now because we've got, you know, if you look at the, uh, for the June quarter in the national accounts, that tells us what the household saving ratio is. That's how much households don't consume out of their disposable income. Well, that went up between March and June, that went up from five, about 5.4% of their disposable income to 19.2%. Dramatic increase in the saving rate. 
and that's that tells you the uncertainty. So my my view is that any tax cuts that filter down to those who might ordinarily spend some of it, they won't spend very much of it all. They'll save it. They'll pay off their debts, and you'll get hardly any kick out of it. Just like we saw last year in July, hardly any kick at all. So my final question uh, to you, Bill, is what other alternatives exist for the Australian government to keep unemployment low and stimulating the economy? Yeah, good question. Uh, you know, there's that old saying, and I've, I've, I used to know who said it, I can't remember, but it's, you know, don't let a, a good crisis go to waste. And uh, in this context, what it means is that at the moment, we're all focused and worried about the health situation. And, you know, people uh, ride the daily numbers, especially my friends in Melbourne. It's become a daily event to wait for the numbers to come out. We're completely focused on that. But meanwhile, the climate crisis hasn't gone away, and uh, you know the, science, the climate scientists are saying things are going to really be bad in ten years unless we act very quickly, and it may be too late already. Who knows? So if you think about that, you've got a massive problem dealing with the economic fallout of the health crisis that demands job creation and spending from the government. You know, capitalism's on life support now. All these people who believe that the market's going to save us, forget it. The government's the only thing between total collapse of the system and so that we need government spending and we need big government spending and we need it uh, in in, uh, uh, public infrastructure investment and we need it in job creation. But if you think about, we should be, don't let the crisis go to waste, we should be thinking about how we can use this opportunity, this big injection of government spending, to address those medium and longer term issues. And so I would be at this stage uh, investing very heavily in, in public infrastructure, in renewable energy, in uh, research and development and, and uh, education uh, with a focus on speeding up the transition away from carbon. That would be one thing I'd be doing. Now, they're not doing that, but I'd be, de- I'd be making sure that what in, in dealing with the short-run challenge, we're also addressing the speeding up our response to the medium-term and longer-term challenge. That's one thing. Now, there's, you know, think about this region, the Hunter region. This is a coal region. And this region's not going to be able to use coal for much longer for climate reasons. Now, who knows what the Chinese are up to at the moment, but they may well decide for us. You know, they're banning imports of Australian coal at the moment. But... Uh, you know, the Hunter region has history of manufacturing and with proper planning and decision-making and funding, this could become a renewable energy hub. 
This could be a hub for manufacturing, for research and design, for technical support, for administration, for sales, on renewable energy. Lots of high skilled jobs, lots of moderately skilled jobs right across the distribution of the occupational structure. With sufficient foresight, this could be a, 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 a major strategy to allow the region to transit from coal reliance to renewable reliance. Now, let's think about another problem. Currently, it's estimated we've got about 400,000 shortage in social housing. That's housing for low-income people. And we've also got a massive housing affordability problem in the private rental market. And low-income workers can't buy houses much anyway. They're too expensive. So what would I do if I was the government? Well, I would be saying, hell, we've got the construction sector uh, precariously balanced between collapse and survival. We need 400,000 homes or residences for low-income workers. Let's do it. Massive boost to the construction sector and dealing with a, a, an incredibly important social problem in the Australian society that's just eating away at the prosperity of our low, less advantaged citizens. Think about another issue. We've um, just before the pandemic, we had massive bushfires. Now we've, they're in California now, but we've, we had them in starting in our winter, you know, three or four months earlier mm. than normal. That's climate change. Now all down the east coast, especially the south southern parts of New South Wales and into Victoria, those regions are, are ravaged. Um, if you look up national parks and uh, for ca camping availability on the south coast, they're all closed because the infrastructure's been burned. Not all of them, but many of them. And the roads have disappeared and melted and things like that. And so why not just create a whole lot of jobs restoring infrastructure and vitality to those communities ravaged by the bushfires? It seems a no-brainer to me. So there's lots of different... There's not a shortage of things that can be done that add to community need that's unmet, environmental care need that's unmet, and uh, the government... Lots of people that can want to work who aren't working, why not just employ them all? That's what I would do. Mm. I wouldn't fiddle around with tax cuts. I would just spend into the economy and create jobs directly... Uh, build houses, build renewable energy infrastructure and industry and all of that and spend billions of dollars and sort this out once and for all. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. The Mitchell's been great. Well, thanks very much, Peter. Thank you. Pleasure. Politics in a Podcast is supported by the University of Newcastle through the School of Humanities and Social Science. Music is provided by Anchor, a free online podcast creator. And I'm your host, Peter Hooker. It's been a pleasure having you, and we hope that you tune in next time for more Politics in a Podcast.